Well, it is my privilege today to bring you God's Word. And as I was preparing for this message, I was thinking about, it's probably about seven years ago, Erica was working for an organization called Global Recordings Network. It's a mission organization. And we hosted some missionaries at our house, some uh, missionaries from Australia. And one of the missionaries had never been to the United States before. So I was really like looking forward to, to having some time with him. And as they knocked on the door, my first impression was, okay, they're going to show up in like crocodile dundee hats with bowie knives and like totally like the wrong thing, right? They walk in, super nice. We start having a, talk, a discussion. I asked the one missionary, um, so what do you think about America? He goes, well, it's not what I expected. So well, what do you mean? He goes, well, um, I thought everyone would have a cowboy hat on and cowboy boots. <laughs> and I said, huh. You know, and then I go, he goes, but there is one thing. Everyone has an American flag all over the place around here. And I said, no, they don't. And as, as I'm saying this, he's pointing outside our window and our, both of our neighbors have their flag poles with the American flag. My daughter had just painted a picture of the American flag and put it on the wall. And I go, okay, you got me on that one. <laughs> you see, the fact is, is we get having national pride. We understand that as Americans. And for me growing up, being American meant being a Christian. It was synonymous with one another. My image of the church was very much influenced by being an American and being in this nation. But yet now we find ourselves in a, a different country, a changing country. This, uh, this graphic right here is a graphic that depicts um, some Barna research. Barna went out and tried to determine what was uh, the most post-Christian areas in the United States. And wherever there's a dot, those are considered post-Christian states or areas. Now, if you, I don't know if you noticed, but it, in the northeastern area, where we happen to be, is a concentration of dots. <clears throat> You see, growing up, although not everyone went to church, there seemed to be this understanding, this Judeo-Christian ethic. People seemed to understand what was right and wrong, and they would reference the Ten Commandments, even if they didn't understand what the Ten Commandments were. They knew there was something, but we don't live in that anymore. And there's a tension. Living here as a Christian, there's tensions here, and we feel it. And sometimes it makes us feel like we don't belong. There's this instability that we feel. And there's this fear that sets in as we watch the news and we see what's happening and we experience these things as Christians. And it's for this very reason that the Apostle Peter writes 1 Peter in the scripture that we're going to look at today. You see, Christ had resurrected and Peter had preached this sermon in Acts and these people that had came to Jerusalem and heard it, they scattered around and they planted all these churches, and the gospel was growing. But then these churches found themselves in a pre-Christian era. They found themselves in an in a, in a area where Christianity wasn't really accepted, and neither was it liked, and they were persecuted. So Peter writes to these dispersed churches in Asia Minor as they're being persecuted. And Peter sends them this letter, reminding them of the nation and the citizenship that they truly belong to. And he writes it to us as well, here in North Andover. 
Today we're going to continue our series. We've been looking at images of the church. We're going to continue and we're going to look at the church as a nation. If you haven't already got there, please turn to 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you right now and we thank you for this time. We thank you to be able to just be in your word. I pray that your spirit would fill us, that you would reveal to us the message you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing we see in 1 Peter 2.9 is we see that the church is a chosen nation. 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen people. You are an elect people. Now that word people in the Greek is an interesting word. It's genos. And it refers to a people that belong to the same genetic stock that cohesively work together. Peter is reminding them, these scattered, persecuted churches, that you belong to something bigger. You belong to this invisible church. You see, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you enter into God's universal church. You are connected with anyone who has ever put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ now or in eternity past. And Peter reminds them of that. He's saying, listen, your citizenship, your identity is determined by your election in Christ. And he further encourages them to live in the light of that election. You see, they're discouraged. They're sitting there and they're like, I'm so discouraged. We love Jesus. We're in the middle of, of this land and people are persecuting us. And Peter says, you're a part of something bigger. You're a part of this eternal, global plan that transcends geography and time. And it's the same thing with us. We are connected with believers all over the world and believers in eternity past. And as the church, our identity is as God's chosen people and we must live in the light of that election. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to live in the light of our election? It means we stand firm in our heavenly country of origin. No matter what happens here locally, We must see things from a global, eternal, Christocentric perspective. We have to remember that God is still in control. And I have to ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe God is in control? Do you demonstrate that? So that's the first thing. The second thing we see, the church is a priestly nation. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. And I find this interesting. Peter is bringing us back to the Old Testament when he mentions this royal priesthood. It harkens to Exodus 19.6. In Exodus 19.6, God calls the nation of Israel, the Israelites, to the foot of Mount Sinai. And he manifests his glory on this mountain. And people are fearing the Lord. And he commissions Israel to be king priests to all the nations, to be different. And that's what Peter uses to talk about the church. You see, upon faith in Christ, we enter into a priesthood of all believers. And we're given authority by the high priest, Jesus Christ, through the Holy Spirit. And we're called to be religious practitioners, mediating the very presence of Christ. 1 Peter 2.5 says, 
You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I can remember my time as a Marine. It's interesting being in full-time pastoral ministry now. Since the first two decades, first two decades of my vocation was, was as a Marine. And I remember countless of people that once they found out that I was a Christian, it was overtly they would they would mock me. You know, they would make fun of Christianity, they make fun of Christ. But then at nighttime, like Nicodemus and John, they would like find me and they would say, Hey, I got this question, this spiritual question. I think that happens to us a lot when someone knows we're a Christian. And I don't want this to go past us. Peter is telling this to a persecuted church. He's telling a persecuted church, listen, these people are persecuting you, but you need to mediate the very presence of Christ to them. You need to be religious practitioners. You need to minister to them. Not for their sake, but for my sake. Let me ask you, do you mediate the very presence of Christ in your current life context? Are you mediating the very presence of Christ? Are you embodying who Christ is to where God has placed you as a church scattered? So that's the second. The third thing. We read the church is a holy nation. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a pure nation. Now here, Peter mixes it up a little bit. He changes the description of people. The word nation there is a new Greek word. It's ethnos. And that's a group of people that are tied culturally and geographically. He, he limits or makes it the, the, the expression of the people smaller in scope. And really what he's expressing to us is the expression of the local church, the visible local church, the people that you see around here. He's talking about us, Free Christian Church here in North Andover. You see, God's visible church, the church that we see, the people we see in this room, are an expression of the invisible church of all believers. And that's why being a member of a church is such a big deal. Today we, we have a discovery course. Discovery is exploring membership and what Free Christian is about and being part of this local body. I encourage you. It's over at Andover, right after the service in the lower hall. I encourage you to attend that if you just want to know more about what it means to be part of a local church, this local church. And we see that as God's holy nation, God is calling us to be holy. What does that mean, though? What does it mean to be holy? Because I think it's thrown around. It doesn't mean to be perfect, but he calls us to be holy. Well, let's, let's look. He answers this question. First Peter 13 through 16 says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be, to be brought to you when uh, Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you have when you live in ignorance. But just as he called you, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. So, what does it mean to be holy? It means that we are to be countercultural. We're called to be alert instead of careless, sober instead of inebriated, hopeful instead of despairing, 
nonconformists instead of conforming to the culture. And as God's local and visible church, we are called to be that local expression of God's holy nation in North Andover and Andover. But what does that mean? What does that look like? It means we should be different. We should be different. When people walk through those doors, it should feel different in here. And I don't mean a creepy difference. I mean a good difference. They should sit there and go, they should sit there and go, these people love Jesus. And they love each other. And I don't get this, but something's different here, and I like it. We should act different. We should speak different. Why? Because our message is different. We have actually a hopeful message. We serve a king who is countercultural in every way. People are always looking to be edgy. You know who the most edgy person ever is? Jesus Christ! If you want to be edgy, be a Christ follower. And look at the opportunity that we have here. I showed you those dots. We live in the most post-Christian area in our nation. It doesn't take much to look different around here. And maybe that's just because I'm not from this area, so I notice it more. But for example, I used this example before, but things are different here. If I was to come up, like I have dress, I'm from California, so I have dress flip flops. That's a real life thing over there, by the way. It's, there's, I'm, I'm dead serious. If I showed up in the middle of December with flip-flops on, first you'd look at me like I'm crazy, then you would worry about my feet falling off, and then you'd say, go change your shoes, Brian. And so I noticed these difference, differences here, but here, as God's people in a post-Christian area, the most post-Christian area in the country, it doesn't take much to be different here. And I don't want to sell you a false like Bill sell here. Because many people say, you become a Christian, everything's great. Everything's wonderful. It's rainbows, butterflies, and lollipops. And everything's wonderful. But that's not the truth. The truth is, if you pursue holiness, if you pursue Christ-likeness, things might not be happy. He's talking to a persecuted church here. They're not exactly happy with their circumstance. And God doesn't say, be happy for I am happy. He says, be holy because I am holy. Does God care about our happiness? Sure. But he cares about our holiness. He cares us, about us being transformed into the likeness of his son. Why? Because he knows when we transform and we pursue holiness and we are transformed into the likeness of his son, we experience the satisfaction of joy of Jesus Christ. And that's eternal. Happiness is fleeting. It's circumstantial. Satisfaction and joy in Christ is forever. Maybe you say, well, I don't know how to do this, Brian. I don't know how to be holy. I need equipping. The first thing you want equipping is to read God's word. God has left us his word. You know the best sound for a pastor to hear? is when you say, turn to 1 Peter 2.9, and you hear this sound. It's like music to my ears. I love it. Or maybe it's a click, 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 click. I don't know. 
We have to be in God's word. You want to know how to engage the culture? God has something to say about that. We have to be men and women of the word. Second thing is, we have people, this church has been blessed with so many people, so many resources. Like, we have some really talented people that God has brought to this church. And things, and one of the things, for example, we're going to have a Q Commons course. That's how do we engage the culture as Christians on the 17th of November. Stuff like that is huge. We have people, we have events, we have things. We take advantage of that. So that's the third thing. The fourth thing, the church is a special nation. For you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Here Peter goes again. He's switching things up on us. And he uses a different Greek word to describe the people of God. So this is the third, third uh, word that he's used that means something different. This word he uses, laos. And this is interesting because this is the word to describe Israel throughout the whole Old Testament. This word, laos. Yet here, Peter refers to use it for, for the church. As a matter of fact, in 1 Peter 2.10, it says, Once you were not a people, a laos, but now you are the people, laos, of God. It's clear Peter believes that those who have put their faith in Christ are the true seed of Abraham and the true Israel, his end times people. You see, there's always been one people of God, and that expression now is the church. And this is a, f- a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. This is what he's, he's uh, referencing here. We look at Hosea 2.23. This is the verse he's referencing. I will plant for her for her myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I call not my loved one. I will say to those who called not my people, you are my people, and they will say, you are my God. Well, someone might say, what about ethnic Israel? What about Israel? Well, Paul makes it clear in Romans that God's not done with Israel. They must be grafted in like everyone else through the gospel, through belief in Jesus Christ. And I believe that there's going to be an evangelistic explosion through the efforts of the church in that area. But there's only one people of God. There's always been one people of God. And you see, Peter calls God's special possession, calls the church his special possession. That word special means something. It means keeping safe and preserving We have the unique distinction of being on this side of redemptive history. And so we see that every single time and any time that somebody has tried to take out the church, the church just gets stronger. People of God just get stronger. God sustains his church. And that's what Peter's telling them. He's saying you're going through persecution, but God will sustain the church. We see this all over the globe right now. Wherever there's persecution, the church is stronger. Because the true people of God love Christ above all, and they're willing to die for it. And the people that don't love Christ fall away. Like, this is too hardcore for me, I'm going away. We have nothing to worry about. Because God has promised to keep us safe and preserve us 
for eternity. You know, I was thinking in my time in the Marine Corps, you know, there was a few conflicts that, that I was involved in. One was some conflicts in the Balkans, Iraq, Afghanistan, and then numerous countries, probably around 30 or 40 different countries. And one thing I always noticed was that world leaders and nations come and go. They come and go. See, nations will rise and fall, but the church, God's special nation, his special possession will never fall. God makes it very clear. Lastly, we see that the church is a proclaiming nation. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare, you may proclaim widely and openly the praises of him who called you out of darkness, a life dominated by evil and ignorance of God to a wonderful light, an exciting, remarkable life of righteousness and knowledge of God. So why do we proclaim? Why do we proclaim? Verse 10 says, once you, once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I don't want, want this to go past this here. Why do we proclaim? The Bible says that apart from God, we are so our hearts are empty. We can't even do anything. We can't even do anything for God. We might be moral, upstanding citizens, but spiritually, we're dead. We're dead as a bag of bones. And we have to come to grips with who we are apart from Christ. We have to understand the bitterness of who we are apart from Christ. Yes, this makes you feel bad, and it should make you feel bad. Why? Because God has just lavished his mercy on you in Christ. You see, I love a black cup of coffee. I do. I love it. The darker, stronger, the better the cup of coffee. I don't like cream or sugar. Give it to me black. I like taking that strong, black, bitter cup of coffee. And I like taking a sweet pastry and drinking the bitterness of the coffee and then eating the sweet pastry. It makes that pastry just seem that much more sweeter. If I had a bunch of sugar and garbage in there and then I ate the pastry, I'd be like, yeah, this is all right. This is good. But it's the juxtaposition of the bitterness and the sweetness. And until we understand the bitterness of our sin and our, our depravity apart from Christ, we will never know the sweetness of God's mercy and grace in Christ. That's why we proclaim. Well, what do we proclaim? What do we proclaim? Verse 9 says, the praises of him who, who called you. What do we proclaim? We proclaim Christ's supremacy and preeminence in all things. That's why we're here as the church. We're here to proclaim Christ. We're here to pro proclaim Christ crucified, the message of hope. The message that says, I am a sinner. We are all sinners. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And we deserve hell. It's a word that people don't want to use, but it's the truth. We deserve hell. 
We, we deserve God's wrath. Why? Because we sinned against the holy God. We've shook in our fists at God. Yet God, in his mercy, sent his son, God himself, clothed in flesh, lived a perfect life. Perfect life. Was nailed to a cross. And here's the thing. When he was nailed to that cross, yes, it was the physical pain of being on a cross. But this was the first time that the eternal son had felt sin. The sinless son of God, Jesus Christ, had felt sin, our sin. And this was the first time that he felt the father's wrath being poured out because of that sin. The wrath that we deserved. And he died. He was buried. But that wasn't the end of the story. He was resurrected. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God does not see us as sinners. He sees us as his children. And he loves us. He sees his perfect son. And we are no longer destined for hell, but destined for heaven. That's what we proclaim. That's what we proclaim. When I was uh, getting ready to, it was probably about June time, this last June when we were getting ready to move from California to here. I do weird Google searches sometimes. The look of judgment right now is, I know you do it too, all right? I, I just type in weird things on Google sometimes. And one of the things I put, opportunities in Massachusetts. Why, I have no idea. And this um, poll came up, the survey came up, and I don't remember who did the survey. It was probably a bogus survey. But anyways, it was, a, it was good at the time. So I said, that they ranked all of the states, and they said, okay, here are the best states with opportunities. And they ranked it based off of education, um, housing, job opportunities, and Massachusetts was number one. And I said, wow, Massachusetts is number one. And then I thought to myself, you know what? Massachusetts is number one. There is most opportunity for the gospel. There's no place I'd rather be than right here. The opportunity is abounding around us. You saw it. You saw the, all the dots. The question I have for us, church, how are we going to take advantage of this? How are we going to take advantage of this? Yeah, an excellent opportunity. After we're done today, you're going to go home. Probably turn on the news. Go on the internet. There's going to be something that is going to discourage you. You're going to say, I, I feel... That instability again, that fear setting in again. But I want to encourage you. We are God's unshakable nation, his church. Why? Because we have an unshakable king, the Lord of all, Jesus Christ. Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. His church, his nation. Let's pray. Father, we come to you right now and just we thank you for choosing us. I pray if there's anyone in here, Lord, that does not know you, that has not put their faith in you, 
that you would stir in our heart right now. That they would know the mercy that you are just ready to just lavish upon them. I pray as we leave here as the church, we would have hope. Why? Because you are our hope. And we are your people. Your unshakable nation. And you are the unshakable Lord of all. I pray we would live in the light of that truth. That we would not let the circumstances of where we're at discourage us. But yet we would be encouraged because the fields are ripe for the harvest. So we love you, Lord. May you go before us. In Jesus' name.